it's often the innovator's dilemma, right? The book I'm referencing as a quick kind of summary is basically like large companies often maybe invent something, but they can't make it public or push it because it will affect their core business. The famous one is that Kodak invented the digital camera, but they put it on a shelf because they had a subscription business, which was selling film. So they needed people to show up and buy film for their camera every 30 pictures. So often it's a startup that, as a result, disrupts the norm that is is set. So, Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. I'm really excited to welcome Drew Moffitt today. He's logging in from New York City. Drew, as I warned you ahead of time, I always ask my guests to give just a little bio introduction of themselves. So please introduce yourself to the audience who doesn't yet know about all of your fantastic escapades. Yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. I currently do marketing. I lead marketing at Kumo Space. Prior to that, I did some corporate venture building. And before that, I started two companies. So for the last 10 plus years, I've been in the startup space. And yeah, I'd love to just sketch out. First of all, let's do the Kumo space thing first, because I think like it's timely in the Zake guys to talk about remote work and interesting ways to think about office collaboration in the virtual office. So I think this is really cool. And people aren't aware of the product. I want to make sure that they at least can explore this in our all Zoom world now. Yeah, Kumo space is building virtual office software. There's kind of three re- real pain points that people decide to start using our product. They're pretty similar to the reasons that people are pushing to go back to a physical. You have increased culture opportunities, you have better collaboration, and there's also visibility elements, right? So those three things are reasons that people are saying, hey, we need to go back to the office. But a lot of teams have become more distributed across the United States. People have moved tertiary markets from maybe where the headquarters was prior to the pandemic. And after all, this is 2023 now, and we do have software, and it's not an impossible problem to fix. So inside of a Kumo space, you enter, which I do every morning, just like you would enter a physical office, and then your audio is contained to nearby you. And you have your own office inside of this larger floor plan, and you can instantly see when you arrive, who else is here. In the same way as if you looked out across a physical office, you could know who's here. You can get insights to maybe what they're doing. That kind of metadata is beneficial for both managers, right? Knowing which team members might need help right now, as well as employees. They can feel often out of the loop in the remote world. This gives them that that sense of, oh, the co-founders are having a conversation. There's um, activities happening in the space. So... That's one piece. It also lets you know when someone's free to collaborate with. 
So often something that happens is people are very productive in remote work, but that's typically when they're working in very small groups and typically when they're working on more individual projects. When you start having to collaborate, say, across departments where you maybe don't have frequent interactions, for example, marketing and engineering, you default in most remote companies to let me go try and find a 30-minute time slot on an engineer's calendar and let me go talk to them. And that inherently delays your ability to move forward. In a Kumo space, you can just look across and see, oh, our lead engineer, our head of engineering is available right now. And let me just go talk to him for five minutes, 10 minutes and get unblocked. And these type of things happen multiple times a day and allow you to move very quickly. And that piece is just akin to what people talk about, where you can go and tap someone on the shoulder in a physical office. And the last piece is because you're interacting in these kind of small ways, you start to have those water cooler moments and company culture. That's what really builds company culture. It's not the quarterly Zoom happy hour. I feel like I, even before pandemic, like I've seen people try this concept and I'm interested in knowing has the time arrived now because of the pandemic or what makes this important right now? I know there's the remote work thing. I guess I'm trying to just say like, how does this solution take off? Because you do have a thing now where for better or worse, you know, we're all booking endless Zoom calls on each other's calendar. You're trying to solve that problem and educate that there is another way to do it that exists almost in this like virtual hybrid. And that happens in the context of Mark Zuckerberg wants everybody to work in the metaverse. And it's not that, but that. And just, you got this whole like interesting zeitgeisty thing going on now. I'm just like, if it's amazing, then everybody should do it. So how do you get everybody to start thinking differently about a solution? Yeah, so I think it's often the innovator's dilemma, right? The book I'm referencing as a quick kind of summary is basically like large companies often maybe invent something, but they can't make it public or push it because it will affect their core business. The famous one is that Kodak invented the digital camera, but they put it on a shelf because they had a subscription business, which was selling film. So they needed people to show up and buy film for their camera every 30 pictures. So often it's a startup that, as a result, disrupts the norm that is is set. So if you look at the way that people are working has changed, the pandemic definitely accelerated that, but it was already starting to change. There was telecommuting started to become a thing. Today, we call that remote work in the 1990s with the advent of the internet and widespread adoption of internet access. And then in the 2000s, the open concept started to come into dominate. And if you look at like Brian Krinsky of Airbnb, he says that the future and the reason that he's made Airbnb a remote first company is that you should let people be spread out, living their best life, and bring them together for physical interactions a couple times a year. That's the remote first model. But in his statement, he really said it accurately by just saying, hey, there was a moment where cubicles were a thing, and Silicon Valley changed that. And then he thinks that the future is going to be remote first. I personally think there's going to be a lot of companies that have adopted hybrid that are increasingly going to move towards a remote first. There's going to be also a lot of companies that have adopted hybrid 
and will stay with hybrid or move towards in-person work. I think it really comes down to your organization and doing what's right for your organization. But for us, it's been a nice boost that the opportunity for people to work remote is just far greater today. But you do have a challenge of how do you tell the world about something? And that there's a great article written by the CEO of Slack in 2013. It was originally an internal memo. And then they think about a year later, they made it public. And you can look it up. It's called, We Don't Sell Saddles. And a big piece of that was basically that in 2013, no one was looking for group productivity checks. Similarly today, like very few people are looking for virtual office software. So a lot of our marketing efforts are looking to appear when the person is searching for the problem. So, you know, our typical consumer of our product is someone who is a manager who is has one of those three pain points, the visibility or collaboration or culture. Uh, it's usually some combination of those two. And they <clears throat> want to solve that. So they go to Google and they search how to run a better remote meeting, how to collaborate remotely, how to build company culture for a remote startup. Those are the type of times that we want them to find. Kubernetes. And that's often known as intent data or like mining into it's a, it's the marketing and messaging version of skates where the puck's going to be type of thing. And it's the classic challenge for discovering a new approach or solution to a problem. I think all of us could look at startup ideas and executions that we had that were like a decade too early and we didn't solve this problem and we're inadequately financed to just wait out the world to catch up with our brilliance. And I wonder when you set out to do this from the start, everybody has that kitchen table moment of we're going to do this new genre defying thing. And what was that like? And then how has that advanced into an actual real product? Yeah, startups just go through a lot of iterations and pivots and Kumo Space is no different. I've been lucky. I've been here since it was two co-founders and the first employee. I've gotten to watch the company evolve and I've had to adapt the way that we market the business in that way to those changes. So the big thing for Kumo Space is that we initially were just trying to fix, the co-founders were trying to fix was that they wanted to have a better way to interact for groups greater than two or three on a video call. And I mentioned earlier, the Zoom happy hours, like they don't work because one person talks and 20 other people like, you know, screw off or feel very lost and uncomfortable. And that's the way that Kuma Space was initially the very beta product launched in August of 2020. It's just like, hey, you can move around this little virtual space. You can have interactions. You can pour yourself a virtual drink and you can interact. And we didn't really know what the consumer was going to look like, how the consumer was going to use it. But we threw it into the wild and the consumer started to play with it and invite friends to it. And granted, you had a lot of tailwinds in that moment, right? There was lockdowns. Fast forward a little bit later into 2021. We were able to do a lot of brand awareness marketing, just saying, hey, here's something that is better than Zoom, especially for like larger group meetings. And people predominantly use the product in what we call today a virtual events use case, where they would organize a happy hour, maybe they would catch up with friends or family, all the way up to large things like doing virtual conferences for Fortune 10 kind of companies. And that was through most of 2021. But as 
the world started to get back to physical events. Conferences started to happen again. People were not needing to use that virtual events use case so much. But we could see in our data, because millions of people had used the product, that there was a subset of users who were trying to use our product always on as this virtual office. And we're like, okay, this is really interesting. This is how you have a business that isn't so much about like once a quarter, once a month, and becomes this truly like daily active used product. And the, the interesting thing was that these early champions were using a product that necessarily wasn't built for that, right? If you use Zoom, and a good example is like only one person can screen share at a time. Inside a Kumo space today, multiple people can screen share. And similarly so, like you need the chat to be persistent. So you can see messages that were sent earlier in the day or the previous day. That's not the case with Zoom. So we spent a lot of 2022 understanding these users and then building the products that the features that, that they needed to start using this as a virtual office. So this interesting idea of like always on persistent kind of connection that I can move in and out of where there's this idea of, are you online? Are you not? Does my little avatar go to sleep in my desk if I go to lunch or like, how do I, I think people have trouble putting their head around how things like this work. And I'm a huge nerd and I want to play with it just so I can understand how do I telepresence myself into little office avatar land. <laughs> yeah. So I think the first thing is it's free to use Kumo space. Give it a try for everyone that sounds this like this sounds interesting. The secondary thing is that going back to that Zoom example, right? What are those additional features that you need to build that aren't standard to Zoom? One of those features is statuses. Like you don't need a status on a Zoom call. And you, we've got statuses and you can write custom messages attached to your video avatar. When you're running out to grab lunch or you're running some errands, you can just leave your avatar and just set your status away, maybe leave a note to what you're actually doing there. And there's also a focus mode, which kind of blocks out all the noise, but allows other people in the space to ping you if they maybe need to collaborate or have a quick question with you. And it's like the physical office version of that is when, say, a software engineer puts headphones on and just heads down working. It's don't really disturb me kind of thing. And then you can have availability. You can just standardly kind of just be available. You can turn your camera on, off. You can go in your office. You can close your door. You can have private conversations in there. So all those things that you have in a kind of a physical office, you can now replicate inside this virtual environment in Kumo Space. And you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg earlier. But the good thing about Kumo Space is that it doesn't require any special hardware. You don't need to go out and spend like $1,500 on a Quest 2 Oculus headset. You can just do it with your the computer you use. We have desktop app for both Windows and Mac, and we have mobile apps coming very shortly. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I love this. I'm going to go play with it. I hope everybody else does too. And I wanted to ask you on your journey to get here, one of the things that jumped out at me was this corporate venture startup experience that you have. And I think that's, I've had just a little bit of tangent contact with that. Companies spending money to make startups, I think is fantastically interesting. Love if you would describe that experience and then, you know, how that actually worked and then what maybe what you learned from it that you brought into your own experience for doing your own startups. Yeah, it was definitely a very unique experience and something that helped shape my thinking. But I'd have to actually rewind a little bit further back in my career. So 
I came, I come out of college. I ended up in real estate. It was the 08 financial collapse. I naively just assumed, oh, I was just going to go into finance when I was going into college. And when I, after I'd been in real estate for a little bit, I wanted something challenging. And I had this idea for a relationship betting app called Forever Not, basically put a bet on the relationship status of say like Kim and Kanye. And I audited some classes at Columbia Business School, finagling my way in there. And I got some engineers to work on it with me and launched this business and it briefly went viral. And then Apple said, whoa, whoa, this is definitely not conforming with our aerial brand. Let's put a kibosh in this right now. Came to a screeching halt Had just recently, I basically went on the true startup roller coaster of going from sleeping on a couch to being on Good Morning America the next day to raising half a million dollars, which back then was substantial seed and then being kicked, not allowed in the app store. And there was no way to fix it. Apple said the issue they had with our product was the relationship betting function. And I was like, that's the whole product. So yeah, that that came to a screeching halt. And then I was just consulting with some other startups. They want help growing, marketing. And I came up with the next idea, which was a company called Tailbus, basically like Uber pool, but for buses. And I reflected on the things that I had done wrong and right when I did Forever Not. And one of the things I didn't like about Forever Not was that it had taken me like six to nine months to, I think it was almost nine months to get the app into the app store. It took maybe a less than a month to go viral, raise money, and then get disallowed from the app store. It would have been nice to have been able to shorten that, that starting period. And I went at Tailbus from the perspective of like, how do you dumb down the idea and say, if I'm going to build Uber, what are the things I must have? It's I need to talk to the customer. I need to know where the customer is and I'll figure out money at a later date. And I need to have some cars that are going to like service the person. That was the way I approached Tailbus. I went and probably from zero to it's 60 days later, I had gone from idea to actually first transacting revenue and quickly in six months grew that half a million dollar runway and found out that the space was pretty underfunded. So ended up selling to the largest player in the space. And after that, I crossed paths with this person who had an app dev shop and he was looking to evolve that business into a consultancy that would help build startups for corporates. And I looked back on what I had done in these prior two startups, and I came up with this process that we called manually hacking a business together. So I was using that Uber example before, and what a manually hacked together version of Uber would look like is I would run some ads on, say, Facebook, and send that person to a landing page where it says text or call this number. And when they did that, I would then just have a bunch of people with phones answer those phones and just say, hey, okay, great. You texted me that you're on the corner of 42nd and 7th Avenue in the center of Times Square. And I would just have a, find a third-party black car service and source the business to them. And what you can start to understand is, is this business, do the mechanics of this business work? And you can do that in such a couple days, couple weeks process. Whereas building an original version of Uber, 
might have taken a lot longer because you are having to integrate GPS data, Google Maps data, and build a, a functioning app. You can at least validate the business a little bit and then build the app. So that was the way that we approached this corporate venture building. And I ended up building four corporate-backed ventures for four different large corporates. Typically, it was a CEO or someone in the C-suite at a company that was often publicly traded who wanted to build a little business. And they would say, give us a mandate. It was maybe a sentence or two and say, go build me a business in that. And then we would approach that from manually hacking that business together. I totally resonate with this. Just like people, I think, have advanced this idea of MVP so far that they've lost the manual hack. I remember, gosh, 15 years ago, maybe on one of my first podcasts, I interviewed the founder of Odesk, which became Upwork. And their super secret algorithm was somebody on one form would submit a job and somebody on another form would submit their resume. And then they had a bunch of sticky notes and whiteboards and they tried to match them up. And that's a great example. And that art, I think, is something that that everybody in the audience can understand. What is the drop dead, awful, unscalable manual version of this thing to just make sure that it worked at all. And I think that's a great lesson. Where did you find places that it kept you from making like outrageous mistakes? I think you could have the ones that are like, okay, this checks out. And then you could also probably much more often have the ones that are just like, this is a total disaster. I'm glad we figured that out now. Yeah. So I was under a pretty tight timeline to do this. We were often having, if I look at one of the most recognizable names would be Ford Motor Company. So it was Marcy Claiborne, which was then the number two and Ford and Jim Hackett, who was the CEO. Marcy Claiborne, I believe, had 90,000 people underneath her in the org chart. And she was responsible for Ford Mobility. She was the CEO of Ford Mobility. And we were brought in and they basically were like, build us an ecosystem of third-party developers around the car. That was the mandate. And when you, that's a pretty broad mandate, but a good example of what that means in reality is like the Apple app yeah, store. There'll be right? an app store for cars. Ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. It's an ecosystem of third party developers developing apps for Apple hardware. Which is not a small challenge because you could look at places where, for example, Microsoft failed to do this. Hey, go ahead and build us an app ecosystem. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's a big ask. And I've got 90 days to deliver something that like is going to look like a fledgling business. So you have pretty big blue ocean there and you just quickly start like testing and iterating in various ways. And what we realized was that infotainment system, like you probably weren't going to beat out Apple and Google because you have the Android and Apple CarPlay. So when you plug in your phone, you get your text message, you get your phone calls, you get your music, you get your navigation, right? Building a bunch of developers on the sync ecosystem, which is their infotainment system, that's going to be really the dynamics of these kind of app development marketplaces is typically like app developers are only willing to make one or two, maybe three versions of the app. Look at desktop computer, Windows, Mac, smartphone, iOS, Android. And not to Windows your point, Mobile. Like, 
Like they, yeah, exactly. Microsoft failed to get that ecosystem for Windows Mobile. And so, Microsoft backed Sync, didn't Yes, I believe there is some interrelationship between that. These large Fortune 500s, they like to partner up. So the infotainment system quickly out. Also, there's a bunch of legal issues that we ran into. You can look at what like Elon Musk is doing. Like He often takes a very aggressive stance towards his interpretation of the highway safety guidelines. Older school companies like Ford and GM, they're more inclined to take far more rigid interpretations, right? Like levels of distraction inside of a sync system are far less distracting than even the Apple CarPlay system. Unlike Tesla, you can watch Netflix. So that was a, there was just a lot of road bump challenges right there. And... But quickly, we threw up some landing pages and start running ads. And this is how we're figuring these things out. We're talking to lawyers internally or to learn out these like, kind of legal concerns that they have. And ultimately, like what we realized, because you need this MVP to be pretty simple, was that you wanted to be able to do some core functionality. And it was basically around five or so core calls that you need to do. Be able to give permission to shift the gear lever, turn on the car, unlock the car, know the location of the car. Those type of things unlock a lot of potential. So companies like Turo or Getaround, right? They can tell a customer where the car is located. They can let the car, the person unlock the car for a duration of time with admin controls associated with it. And you can then let them shift the gear lever once they turn it on all with you, without having to install special hardware. So that started to look really interesting. Similar things for like startups like Yoshi that fuel your car when it's parked at your office or at your house, cleaning your, detailing your car companies that come to detail, delivery of packages and goods. So there was just a lot of stuff. And we couldn't use the Ford brand in any of this. So threw up, I think it was Unbounce or Wix, a quick website with these ads running to them. And we were able to start getting people to say, yeah, we'd love to participate in a beta. And through cold outbound, we were able to get a bunch of these with large startups like Turo and Get Around and Spiffy and things of that nature. So that one, it actually was pretty few bumps in the road. I would say... Another one was I was working for a large publicly traded metals company. And I found out in hindsight that the CEO maybe was trying to test our abilities, maybe more accurately test my abilities. So they sent us to a market where to metal, obviously very heavy thing. What we're talking about is things like structural steel, big steel plates, stuff of that nature. Very heavy, hard to move around. Typically, the way the supply chain works is you have local mills in a near proximity and this mills are often trained in or shipped in on boats because it's so heavy. And then it's the last mile is trucked. And they sent us to Vancouver. Can turns out that market had no supply, which made it extremely problematic. They were trying to build uh, a lot of their clientele are people building a skyscraper, right? So they're buying lots and lots of structural steel, but they want to service the person who's going to build the railings. That's very small diameter, kind of light pieces of metal. And those were mostly done by mom and pop shops. So they want to build a marketplace where they could kind of 
unify the supply. The buyer is struggling because they're trying to bid out a job and they have to call a bunch of people. And the, the industry as a whole is like very undigitized. We went there and they're getting all, again, running a website. I don't remember the name of it up on Wix or Unbounce or some other kind of easy drag and drop solution. And what we would do is we would get inquiries and we quickly started to build a little ecosystem of suppliers. They weren't really happy to formally get involved with our marketplace, um, but they were down to take our business and take our money. And we would just be matchmaking with a phone. And we were doing this and we quickly realized that there was like no supply of this smaller pieces of metal because most of the supply actually gets shipped in from China. And there are no local steel mills within like Alberta and British Columbia. So eventually we, after pounding our head against the wall, trying different types of metals. And what I mean by types is there's a lot of lengths, there's material, there's also shapes. So that's where these different types that we were trying. And we did that. (laughs) And then they said, hey, you know what, we'll let you guys go to Texas. A lot of steel mills in Texas, a lot of oil and gas. So it makes sense. Like they need that type of material. There's obviously the Gulf Coast to ship stuff in. The country is, the landscape is fairly flat. So it's easy to rail and and truck stuff in from other states where there are steel mills. So it was a very easy, you you had no NAFTA or now replacement of NAFTA. None of those tariffs were in place at this market going from US to Canada. So that's why a lot of that was coming from China. And it completely changed the dynamics for us because we had supply in the market, but we couldn't figure out pricing because we were just guessing. And as I mentioned, there's so many shapes plus the molecular structure of that material plus the sizes. You have almost like infinite skews. So it's really hard to guess like what this looks like. But steel is a commodity-driven product, but it doesn't work in the same way. Of the shape affects the cost. The molecular makeup affects the... It can also just be the supply. Certain odd, harder, fine shapes are going to be just more expensive because they're not made in lots of quantity. So we started doing these transactions and I had a really great associate working with me and he had an investment banking background and he starts, he comes to me and he goes, Drew, let's maybe I can make like a little financial model that like predicts, right? If we start logging these materials and what they are, then we can try to predict what the price is because that was the thing you needed to give someone calling you an answer on a price like as quickly as possible. And that's going to win the transaction. But we couldn't just, we were guessing and often we would make some money, but a lot of times we'd also lose money. And so it was that trial and error figuring this out. And then we ultimately, this became a quite large recommendation engine. And again, instead of going and building a real recommendation engine, it started off as an Excel spreadsheet where we started to say, okay, these were shapes. They have these, this is past pricing. And then we started to ingest commodity data around how price points were moving. And we could basically start to infer gross margins of these suppliers. And then you can add a slight premium to that to get your profit. Instead of going and building this in once, eventually the Excel model got so big, it wouldn't open or save. So it basically crashed on a very new Windows machine, should be running Excel really well. And we need something else. So we ended up deciding and spent about three weeks. Again, it would not have taken, it would taken far longer to build a real recommendation engine in Python, do real ETL and a server. And we just grabbed Salesforce, their CRM product, and we just 
filled in that relationship, like the data structure is, is already in the right structure. And we just had the thing calculate for us. So that was how you went from ultimately the Excel, sorry, the Salesforce was after that 90 days, like we were spending more time building this. It's just an example of how you can really start small on MVP. And once you prove that this thing is working, you can start building upon it. Right. Like it's like just use your ability to collect this data from this manual hacking process, which probably just feels pretty miserable to execute for a little while, but use that discovery mechanism to then cut out all kinds of mistakes that you could have institutionalized into code that you didn't need to. And I think that's a fantastic lesson. So before we run out of time, I always like to ask, put on your sort of near-term future hat and for all the B2B leaders in the audience, what things should be on their radar that you're aware of over the next two, three years just maybe didn't make the strategic meeting yet? Because I think I like those perspectives to help everybody else. Just what should they be aware of from your perspective, from where you're sitting? Yeah, so I think the way that to bring this full circle to Kumo space, the way that I always approach marketing here is the same way that I've manually hacked those businesses together as we were describing. And I was telling a story there about like how we did that and the high points. But along that course, there was a lot of low points. And doing that manual experience of cold calling a bunch, not cold calling, but calling a bunch of third-party suppliers um, and then losing deals can be very, it feels like failure. And it can be very emotional and morale driving in both ways. When you succeed, it goes up. And when you fail, it goes down. So the one piece of advice I always have is that there's a lot of tactics that are always out there. And the individual business, the tactic may or may not work for them. And what I mean by that is that the tactic works, but it doesn't work for the product or the market you're trying to sell into. So just be really willing as someone who's like a B2B leader to say, hey, Let's spitball a lot of ways to market and, or sell our product. And then let's just go try and test them as quickly as possible. And if it becomes overly complicated, you really need to just sit there and think to yourself, what is the cost, right? If it takes a lot of time, there's labor costs associated with it. Really think about that and prioritize the way that you're investing your resources. Especially as a startup, you just got limited resources. The things that I would say that are going to be in the future... We had a lot of success with short form video content in 2021, right? So that's like the TikTok, the YouTube, Instagram reels. That's often been considered very much a B2C medium. I think that it is a way to absolutely access the B2B market. We called it a B2C to B channel where we went out there, we'd get millions of views of, hey, check out this. It's a better version of Zoom. And then as a result of that, we would see large corporates coming to us for inquiries to use our product. So that would be one. I think SEO is always, especially for the B2B space, is a component that... And those the SEO one, I can't think of... There, there may be, but a, a business example where that's not going to benefit you. The short-form video content, that would be an example. It may not work for you for various reasons. The cold tactics, people always talk about them. They exist. I definitely think if it's right for your business, you should try it. If it works for your business, definitely do it. The one thing that I always try to think about is just like, how am I trying to advance the way this tactic I read about was? Because I think of marketing often as the tip of the spear, right? If you are going to succeed, 
you really need to always be that very tip of the spear. Once it becomes super known, for example, like cold email marketing was far more effective in 2005 than it is today. You probably didn't need to do the level of commercialization that you need to do to make it look something that someone would open. So just always think about a tactic and then how that tactic can be evolved. Yeah, I love that. And you're talking a lot about, I hear the language of demand gen, that just people need to become aware of that, particularly when you have a new approach to a problem. And that's where I think that broader social media type of thing is just so important because you have to reach people where they are. And all those people do work for jobs or major corporations or whatever, like they do something out there. And I think that's a great lesson. And I love the feedback about outbound because sitting in the sales and consulting seat, everybody wants to just go, well, let's do outbound. Let's do cold calling. Let's do cold email. And I'm just like, look, that's maybe going to work, but let's talk about some other channels that, you know, potentially are useful. Is there last thing is that, are you aware of any one excellent list of all possible tactics? So you don't have to read 50,000 blogs and try to assemble your own. I feel like this would be a genius thing to do. Yeah. Someone should probably put it together. I don't know of one. Funny enough, I wouldn't say I read a ton of blogs about marketing. I read about tactics, but it's more driven in the sense of like, let me, I'm going to focus on this tactic. So then I'm going to start reading a lot of stuff about that, or I'm going to look into that. I've been fortunate enough because of the corporate venture building to have touched my hands into every tactic. So I have some nascent understanding of most things. I'm probably pretty rusty. For example, like social media ads, I haven't ran in probably five or six years. And I know that game is always changing and evolving. And so when you go back to a tactic like that, you need to figure out what's new on it. What I do when I do marketing planning for us is I will build in my marketing, my 2023 now marketing plan, I'll build and prioritize a list of activities that are happening in a given quarter. And then I will also build a list of all the other ideas and tactics that we're not going to focus on. It's important to also like have those ideas. And because I've done that exercise, it's pretty easy when I go back to to plan, say 2024, I already have my own list of all the things that we thought might be interesting and how to do it. And then I can go back and say, okay, this is what we're going to start trying to slot in this new quarter. So that's, I think that kind of brainstorming activity of getting it for yourself Because again, your business is unique. It would be nice to know, here's the 50, 100 marketing tactics that you can go look at and then gain which ones are yours and build your not doing list from that. But yeah, someone should make that list. All right. I'm assigning you for your next startup to somehow you need to do this and monetize this. (laughs) Awesome, Drew. So if people are resonating in the audience, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Which channels, which URL? Please share all those things. Yeah. So there's a couple of ways. The first one is go check out Kumo Space. If you schedule a demo, you will arrive in our virtual office. And there's a high probability that I will be around and available in that moment. So the person, the sales and support rep that you're chatting with will 
gladly come find me. You can also email me. My email is just drew at kumospace.com. And that's probably the best ways to reach out to me. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks so much for the insights. We really enjoyed it. It's this fantastic list of things to think about. And that's what we love here on the show, man. So th- thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.